we talk about women's health. In the United States, disparities among uh, minority populations when it comes to maternal and child health issues are, are pretty negative, right? And um, in Ghana, you know, well, the government is doing its best to try to reduce maternal mortality and to improve upon um, the health of, of infants and children. And that's the same that we find here in the United States. HIV AIDS is an issue here in the United States, and it's also an issue in Ghana. Maybe the difference is that here in the United States, people are more, um, people feel more at ease to talk about it. Whereas in Ghana, for cultural reasons, it's a little, it's a little stigmatized, right? So sure. people don't want to talk about it. But they see that there are similarities and, there are, and, and some differences because that's what they do. is not just to learn about what happens in Ghana, but to also compare what happens to Ghana, what happens in Ghana, sorry, to what pertains in the United States so they can see where the similarities are and what the difference is that. This is the O-Rise Featurecast. Join host Michael Holtz for conversations with O-Rise experts on STEM workforce development, scientific and technical reviews, and the evaluation of radiation exposure and environmental contamination. You'll also hear from O-Rise research program participants and their mentors as they talk about their experiences and how they are helping shape the future of science. Welcome to the O-Rise Featurecast. Welcome to another episode of the O-Rise Featurecast. As ever, I'm your host, Michael Holtz, in the Communications and Marketing Department at the Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education. And I'm really excited today to be speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Armstrong Mensa. Dr. Elizabeth Armstrong Mensa was recently honored by the Association of Schools and Programs of Public Health for her work as a clinical associate professor at the Georgia State University School of Public Health, a role that she's held since August 2017. She is a former ORISE fellow at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and we're going to talk about all of that. But first, Dr. Elizabeth Armstrong, and so welcome to the ORISE feature cast. Well, thank you for having me. So. If you would, I know I've talked a little bit about um, your role at Georgia State University in the School of Public Health. Tell me what you do as a clinical professor. Mm -hmm. So um, as a clinical associate professor at Georgia State University, I wear three different hats. Okay. So I am, I am doing teaching, I'm doing research, and then I'm providing service. So 88% of my time goes into teaching. Okay. 6% goes into research and 6% goes into service. And um, every semester I'm teaching um, graduate or undergraduates. In the fall, I'm teaching four co three courses. In the spring, I'm teaching four. In summer, I'm teaching three, including a study abroad to Ghana. And um, I usually have about 45 students at, at the most in my class. That's the max that I can get that. I'm allowed to have each semester. Okay. And uh, with regards to research, um, I try to publish at least five manuscripts, you know, in peer review journals every sem every academic year. Wow. And yes, and I'm sometimes mentoring students um, either as a member of the thesis committee or a chair of the thesis committee or a member of a dissertation committee. I also work with students um, at the graduate and undergraduate levels too hone in their writing skills. They work with me. They co-author papers with me. With regards to service, um, I serve on various committees at the university level and at the school level 
and I also offer uh, volunteer services to the, to community members um, on, on on issues related to uh, public health. Wow! So you <laughs> you have a full plate all the time. <laughs> oh yes, I mean it's it's yeah. I mean it, I'm always busy. <laughs> There's always, always something busy. to do. Yeah. Well, so. Um, recently, you were honored by the Association of Schools and Programs of Public Health with um, their Early Career Teaching Excellence Award, mm-hmm. um, which recognizes a junior faculty member for outstanding teaching and mentoring of students. Um, what was it like? Um, I guess, how do you feel about that honor and um, being recognized for mm-hmm all of the work that you do. I mean, you have a full plate, so <laughs> you are, it sounds like you're doing all of the things that, <laughs> that would certainly qualify you for this honor. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it was very humbling. I mean, it, oh, it has been a very humbling experience. Um, I, I came into this profession with a mindset of, you know, wanting to help the next generation of public health students enter the workforce and maybe even pursue higher education. Mine was anybody that I interacted with, I was going to give my best, right, to make sure that they would excel, you know. So I wasn't doing this work, you know, with the mindset that maybe someone is watching. I was doing it because I was passionate about it and I really wanted to see my students succeed. And these are some of the things that student w- students would write in my end of course evaluations that they see that I'm really interested in, in their welfare, I'm really interested in seeing that they, they succeed, right? So um, in as much as I was doing it because I really believed in my students and I wanted them to make it, it was an honor, you know, that it was recognized and that I was, um, you know, I was given this award and given this kind of recognition, you know, but right. uh, honestly, it's it's humbling. Right. Really. Mm-hmm. And as you said, you have a passion for public health and for mentoring students. So um, was public health something that you, you've you always been interested in? Was that something that came to you, um, you know, in high school, in college, or was that, was it always sort of there? Never. Never really? Okay. <laughs> Never. You know, I, I didn't start out wanting to be a public health professional. Okay. You know, when I was um, about to complete high school, I had a conversation with my, my father and it was about my, my next steps, right? Okay. And he said, well, I mean, I, I want to propose a career in law, you know? And I was like, okay, well, if, if that's what you think, I'll do it because, I mean, I, I really admired my father. And I say I admired because he's no longer with us. Right. And he always gave me good advice. And so my, my whole purpose at the time was to become a lawyer. But unfortunately, law wasn't offered when I started my college education. And I didn't want to wait for a semester, you know, and not do anything because they said they would offer it the next semester. And I was like, no, I'm not about to wait. So then I decided to enroll in the sociology sociology program. I didn't know anything about sociology at the time, but someone had advised me, says, well, if law is not available, how about sociology? Because I'm... I mean, that individual was already enrolled in the sociology program at the University of Ghana. And so I did. But I'm very happy that I did because I really came to love and enjoy, you know, that discipline. After graduation, um, you know, all my colleagues were thinking of going back to do their master's. I was like, okay, if they are going to do their master's, I must do mine as well. But the thing is, I didn't do law. 
and now I'm done with sociology. What am I going to do with a sociology degree? Right. So then I thought for a while, I said, oh, my dad, my father is a career diplomat. And I find his, I find his job very cool. Right. So I said, well, then let me just go get a degree in international affairs and development. Then I can become a diplomat like my father. Right. right. So after two years, I'm done. And then I'm ready to, um, you know, apply. Well, I did apply to the, the foreign ministry, which would be your Department of State here. And I was really looking forward to be hired. And guess what? They come to me and say, you know what? We are not hiring. Um, uh, there's a there's a hiring freeze. You're not hiring in the next two years. So it's like, what's going on here? I mean, I didn't get to do law. I did sociology. Now I've done international affairs. I don't get in, you know. <laughs> and I didn't want to be a burden to my parents. And I knew I had to work. And so I accepted a position um, as a trainer okay. with the trained group in Kumasi. Kumasi is. Um, an administrative region in Ghana. And I'd never been to that state before, but I just went because, I mean, I thought I had to work. And this group actually provides or provided consulting services on rural water supply and sanitation to international, I mean, to, um, you know, international development agencies like the World Bank, Danida, JICA, et cetera. So that was my first introduction to public health. And I loved what they did, you know, and that began my long career in, in this in this field wow yes. so um you you sparked this interest in public health I, i'm assuming at some point then you moved to the united states yes right um and i know that you were an orise fellow at the cdc um in the national center for environmental health how did how did you find out about that fellowship and and get involved at the cdc all right. So um, when I finished my PhD, um, you know, there was a follow period. I, I couldn't find a job. Right. And so I reached out to one of my former professors. He was at Moha School of Medicine at the time. And so he was able to find me something to do. It was it was just a placeholder. I mean, it didn't pay much. But I mean, I was I was content with it because at least I had something to do. Right. Um, I was doing um, HIV AIDS work as a project manager on an HIV AIDS project. And uh, the, that that team had that that um, the prevention research center had an evaluation unit, and I re- and I really admired what the the people on that team did. Right, so I began to teach myself evaluation on the side. Okay. Right, and so um, I spoke to a colleague who was at CDC, and I was telling her that hmm, you know I'm looking I'm looking to expand my horizon, and if she knew of any opportunities, and says oh, well. This um, announcement just came out. You know, it has to do with evaluation. And would you want to try it? I was like, well, what do I lose? You know, and so I I put together a packet and I I attended my application and I got in. You know, so that was how I got to become an Arise Fellow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And um, tell me about um, that experience. Um, I know, you know, Arise experience, you know, fellowship experiences are mentored opportunities at, you know, the CDC and at national labs and other, other locations around the country. Um, what was that experience like for you? Oh, um, it was a great experience. Honestly, I was there for three and a half years with the okay. national center for environmental health and my mentor, um, Carol Selman, um, great, great mentor. And I also had, um, Tom Chapel, the former, uh, Chief Evaluator of CDC. He was also a mentor, as well as Goldie McDonald, who's also very well known for her, her evaluation work at CDC. Um, 
you know, when I got in there, I knew I had to do my best because, you know, I, I mean, I had been selected among I mean, a number of people. So it's like sure. the expectations were great and I wasn't about to disappoint anyone. Right. So um, I put my best foot forward and, you know, I would have these monthly meetings with Tom Chappell, you know, and he would ask, what are you doing? And et cetera. And then I got to meet with Goldie McDonald, who does a lot of work, you know, in evaluation. And um, she gave me lots of opportunities. I mean, Goldie mentored me, um, especially when it came to logic models and, and, and monitoring and evaluation plan development. And she gave me the opportunity to go to South Africa to represent her, to work with the South Africa CDC office to design um, a logic model and an, a monitoring and evaluation plan for HIV prevention for the country. You know, wow. and she also gave me the opportunity to do some work with the um, it was the with, with the laboratories. I mean, they they had a first lab forum, and she um, kind of like nominated me or kind of brought my name up, and and they they called me and asked me if I would be interested in, you know, assessing that 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 event. And it was a great opportunity because then I got to work with people like Laurie Wingate. You know, the, she really review the questionnaire that I designed. So it's like there were lots of learning opportunities along the way, you know, and it was a very supportive environment. So I um, I have nothing but but pleasant thoughts and I'm very grateful and thankful for, for that opportunity and, and those years that I was there. Wonderful. Um, if I can go back um, mm-hmm. just a little bit, um, we you talked a little bit about you grew up in Ghana, you went to school in Ghana, um, Moved to the U.S. to pursue your Ph.D., if I understand correctly? Yes, I did my, my first and second degrees in Ghana, and then I um, joined my husband. So I got married, and I had to come over and join my husband. And so then I, while waiting to sort my papers and things out, I decided to do a Ph.D. It wasn't on the radar at all. I just went to okay. school and did the Ph.D. And, you know, yeah. I gotcha. Um, tremendous culture shock between... <laughs> Ghana yeah. in the U.S. or no? No, my, my father was a career diplomat, so we traveled a lot. I, you know, you, you and, said that, that makes sense. Right, and working in the sector, I traveled every year to conferences and made presentations. You know, so there wasn't a culture shock at all. Great. At all. Yes. Okay. Um, but, and you mentioned earlier, you have classes that you're, you teach in Ghana currently. Um if I understood that correctly, right? So um, I guess, is that a way of sort of giving back to your home country to to be teaching students who are still there? Okay, so just to correct it, I don't teach students who are there, but I take students from here, there. Okay. I got you, okay. Yes, as part of my study abroad program. To, to Ghana, yes. I got yes. you. Okay. To, to learn about contemporary global, global public health issues, specifically um, water and sanitation issues, HIV, AIDS, and women's health. We talk about these things here in the United States. We look at it from a global perspective, but it's only theory. So I right. take them down to Ghana where theory meets practice. They go to Ghana. Actually, before they go, they've designed their questionnaires around these three areas. We go to Ghana. We, we interact with uh, in-country partners, provide lectures, and then they go into the community and collect data around these three contemporary public health issues do data analysis, do a presentation and provide recommendations, you know, from a culturally uh, sensitive point of view, what could Ghana do better in these areas? Supposing they had the, the, the chance to change anything, what would they do? Right. Yeah. How meaningful is it for your students to 
be on the ground in Ghana to see, as you said, you know, it's theory in the classroom, but it's mm -hmm. practice when they're there. What does that do for your students to, to be on the ground, to see that firsthand? Mm -hmm. um, first of all, I think it erodes some of the erroneous concepts they have of a developing country. Um, just recently, I was talking to one of the students and she asked me, do you have Uber in Ghana? I'm like, what? We have Uber in Ghana, right? <laughs> yes, we do. And we live in houses. We don't live in huts. Right. You know, so it, it's it's to kind of like um, get rid of some of those um, negative uh, thoughts that they have and also to sharpen their cultural sensitivity and global fluency, right? So when they go to Ghana, they realize that Ghana is like, I mean, like it's not anything different from the United States. It's just that maybe um, the United States is a, it's more developed than Ghana, but it's not mm -hmm. like, People are living in huts and they're animals on the street, right? And then they right, get and the roads to aren't paved and yeah, <laughs> right. And they see that I mean that people drive, people ride in cars, and people live in nice places, you right. know. And then they come to realize that um, some of the issues that pertain or that occur in Ghana also happen here, mm. right? You talk about water and sanitation issues. Flint, Michigan had a water and a water issue, Absolutely. right? Um, we talk about women's health. In the United States, disparities among uh, minority populations when it comes to maternal and child health issues are, are pretty negative, right? And right. Um, in Ghana, you know, well, the government is doing its best to try to reduce maternal mortality and to improve upon um, the health of, of infants and children. And that's the same that we find here in the United States. HIV AIDS is an issue here in the United States and it's also an issue in Ghana. Maybe the difference is that here in the United States, people are more, um, people feel more at ease to talk about it. Whereas in Ghana, for cultural reasons, it's a little, it's a little stigmatized, right? So sure. people don't want to talk about it. But they see that there are similarities and, there are, and, and some differences because that's what they do. It's not just to learn about what happens in Ghana, but to also compare what happens to Ghana, what happens in Ghana, sorry, to what pertains in the United States. So they can see where the similarities are and what the differences are. So it kind of like changes their perspective a little bit right. to see that it's not like the United States is perfect, right? That, that, that some of the problems sure. here are some of the ones you see in Ghana and some of the problems you see in Ghana are some of the ones you see here, but maybe on a different level or different magnitude. Right. But public health issues are public health public issues health, regardless yes. of the country that you're talking yes. about. So yes. um, it adds that as you said, that cultural perspective of, mm -hmm. of understanding that yes. this is happening everywhere. Yeah. Right. Um, you've talked about being mentored, particularly as an ORISE participant. Um, I, I, I hear you talking about mentoring and showing students, you know, um, the cultural connections, but also, you know, mentoring students, you know, on a daily basis with their papers and with the work that they're doing. What does it mean to you to um, pour your passion for public health into other students? First of all, I think it's a privilege, right? Because, I mean, not everybody gets the opportunity to, to share what they love to do with others, mm -hmm. right? And it's, it's also a privilege because you know, I'm participating in educating and preparing the next generation of public health students, you know, who will join the workforce and who might even want to pursue higher education. So it's something I take seriously and something that I, um, you know, put all my strength, I, that I target all my strength and efforts at, because if, if they're successful, I'm happy. If they're successful, it reflects positively on me. Sure. If they're successful, I know that 
um, they're not going to go out there and be mediocre in what they do, that, that they will excel and then um, that excellence will rub off society, right? And hopefully um, we, 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 we see some changes in some of the areas that we are mentoring them in, right? So for me, it's a privilege. For me, um, it's a great opportunity. Wonderful. Um, I love I love hearing that. I have a little bit of a background in public health. So oh, okay. I work for the... Um, the county health department here in um, Knox County for a couple of years and just fell in love with the people that, you know, are on the ground every day mm-hmm. doing the education and doing the evaluation, the epidemiology yeah. work. Um, so, which I guess leads me to, you know, we've, we've, as an, as a country and as a world, we've, you know, gone through a, a pretty substantial public health crisis, right? The mm-hmm. last few years. Um, are is that helping bring more students to public health? Are you seeing more interest in public health as a course of study um, because of the pandemic? Um, mm-hmm. has, it al- or has it always just sort of, there's always been an interest in public health? I think there's always been an interest. I mean, it's it's too early now to tell whether there's been a spike in enrollment because things just normalized, right? Sure. But I wouldn't be surprised if um, next academic year numbers go up because the thing is, public health has become even more relevant in today's world with these things that are happening. You know, I was just talking to some students about global health security, right? When we talk about global health security, we're talking about the fact that the way countries manage health issues, you know, in their spaces pretty much determines health outcomes in a different place, mm-hmm. right? Gone are the days when you say, well, it's happening in your country. Sorry, take care of it. You can't do that nowadays because due to globalization, somebody is going to get in a plane, you know, and within hours, if they have a condition and have a disease or carrying a pathogen, they're going to introduce it into a different space, right? So you can't be complacent. You can't sit there and and say it's okay, right? So um, students, you know, continue to show interest. And even as we, I mean, as I give them assignments and, you know, ask them to talk about how global health is relevant in today's world, they're all talking about the COVID, you know, pandemic and how, you know, um, in as much as public health focuses on what's happening in a community, you see that different communities at the same time are experiencing the same thing, mm-hmm. right? And it becomes necessary to begin to focus on what communities can do to protect their populations, right? What can we do in such situations to make sure that there's equity, to make sure that minority populations are protected, right? All of these things have to do with public health. So the interest is there. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's a spike in the in, in enrollment, you know, for next semester. I know that with our master's programs, we see some there's some inc- there's some increment, right? But I'm waiting to see what the what, what the undergraduate numbers look like, and I'm sure the numbers will go up, you know. But there's always been an interest in public health for these reasons. The pandemic really laid bare for our country and and the world, really. But the issues with health disparities and health equity, not just in the public health system, but really in the health system as a whole, that not everyone has the same access, not everyone has um, the same um, ability necessarily to get the help that they need or the information that they need. Um, and really a host of other things. You know, we, we now have, a, I think, a better understanding of um, you know, how basically how where you live often determines if you live and how long you live and the quality of life where you live, you mm-hmm. know, 
those things that we had been talking about. You know, we talked about them for a long time, but we have a much better understanding. Um, does that seem to be true from your perspective? Well, yeah, to some extent. And it's sad that it should take a pandemic for the country to begin to see. I mean, these disparities and inequities have been around for a long time, like you said. You know, it, it only took the pandemic to bring these things to the fore, right? We have minority populations that have pre-existing conditions that become, um, you know, risk factors for COVID-19, you know, and these people were experiencing these conditions before the pandemic struck. Absolutely. So what were we doing, you know? Um, these minority populations are people who are frontline workers who can't take time off, right? When COVID-19 came and uh, came around and, you know, the, the instruction was to um, stay home, right? Okay, stay home and how do they make a living, right. right? And it wasn't like they could work from home. They had to be on the front lines, right? Why, why did it have to take COVID for this to happen, right? Yeah. So it only goes back to the fact that, I mean, are people really willing to look at health inequities and disparities and look at it from not the superficial, um, you know, occurrence, but look at the root cause, right? Because there are, there are things at, at the very foundation of these disparities have, that have to be looked at, right? Inequities. I mean, when we talk about health equity, we're talking about, you know, the um, opportunity for people to realize their full health potential. But what opportunity is there for minority populations? We're talking about, when we talk about health disparities, we're talking about differences in health outcome due to social, environmental, and economic disadvantage. And this is what minority populations experience day in, day out. Absolutely. Right? So these are things that have been there all this while. But why did COVID-19 have to come to make it more of a greater issue? You know, right. it's just that it just became, I mean, things just became more um, obvious, you know, and now we couldn't run away from it. But the question that still remains is, what have we really done? Right. And you have know, we learned to change from the, Yeah, to change the situation. Have we really learned, learned from it? Maybe at that moment we saw the need to do something. But, you know, are they sustainable? Right. You know, um, it took a while for minority populations to have access to vaccines. Some couldn't go get tested because they had to be at work. By the time they closed their jobs from their jobs, those sites were, were shut down. How, has, any, has any of that changed? Right. Have we set up systems where minority populations can also um, take some days off and, and, and rest and still be paid some money? No. Right. You know, they, they have to be at post to make money. And Absolutely. that hasn't changed. Yeah. They still have to work. And sometimes they're working two or three frontline jobs yeah. to make ends meet. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we still have work to do, don't we? Yeah. I mean, during the pandemic, we saw the need to do something. But now, now COVID-19 is no longer a threat, right? So have things gone back to business as usual? Mm -hmm. Or have right. we started to put in place mechanisms? And I think that it's not just coming up with this intervention or with that program. I think the, it, it, there's a bigger problem. You know, the systemic yeah. issues that have to be addressed. You know, if the systemic issues are addressed, then chances are we might be making our way towards, you know, decreasing or removing these barriers that create inequities and therefore disparities in the long run. Right. So a lot of work to do. Yes. I mean, th there's got to be a reckoning that yeah. there are disparities, that there are, in sorry, that, that there are inequities, right? Because these the inequities don't only, um, shouldn't only show up or shouldn't be recognized when there's a, a health emergency, right? We should realize that people 
uh, at different stations in life. Certain people have opportunities, certain people don't have opportunities. And with equity, we are not saying give everybody the same thing. We are saying with somebody, what they need is transportation to get to the health facility. With someone, it's insurance that they need. With someone, it's maybe I need um, someone to take care of my kids so that I can mm-hmm. go to the hospital. So nice. people have differential needs, right? That if that if I met, you know, will help them realize their full health potential. Question is, I'm not sure we are there yet. And I don't wow. think we are uh, giving it the attention that it needs um, post-pandemic. Gotcha. So we have work to do, basically. Yes. We have work to do at all levels, really. It's yeah. It's public health, but it's policy and it's it's societal. We have yes, work yes. It's just recognizing that we are not all equal, you right. know, and that there's a social structure and that some are at higher levels than others. People have better socioeconomic status standing than others. You know, the determinants of health don't play out the same way for everybody, right? right. But how? I mean. We, we may not be able to meet everybody's needs, but how do we narrow the gaps so that people are, you know, at a point where it's not as bad as, as it is right now? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And hopefully we can get there and we, we will learn. Hope, mm-hmm. The hope is that we will learn from um, the pandemic what to do next. And yes. To, um, help even the playing field for everybody. Yes. I mean, I can see us going back to, to, to this period to um, come up with strategies, should there be, God forbid, a million times, another global health emergency, we would know that, okay, we need to do this. But it shouldn't be for those times alone, right? right? When there is peacetime, when nothing is happening, you know, there should be some equity across so people can realize their full health potential. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Armstrong Menso, last question for you. Um, what brings you joy? That's an interesting question. <laughs> well, lots of things bring me joy. Um, you know, the fact that I have a job in an area that I'm passionate about brings me joy. You know, the fact that I'm able to connect with my students brings me joy. You know, the fact that they can write to me even when they've graduated to tell me what's going on in their lives bring me joy. Right. When they are having issues deciding which college to go to what what's courses to enroll in brings me joy. When they do well academically, brings me <laughs> joy. <laughs> when they're confident and bold enough in class to say to me, Dr. Amstromensa, I don't understand this concept, brings me joy because it tells me that they are comfortable enough with me, that I've, I've succeeded in creating an environment where they are comfortable, you know, they feel free to participate, to ask questions, right? Those right. things bring me joy. That's wonderful. Um, Dr. Elizabeth Armstrong Mensa, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I really appreciated getting to know you and to um, talk about some really important issues for um, for our country and for Ghana as well, for that mm-hmm. matter. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure and um, a great time having this conversation and sharing all these things with you. So thank you once again for having me. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Yes, you too. Thank you for listening to the O-Rise Feature Cast. To learn more about the Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education, visit orise.orau.gov or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at O-Rise Connect. If you like the O-Rise Feature Cast, give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts.
The Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education is managed by ORAU for the U.S. Department of Energy.